This is a podcast from Real Life Sango in Clarksville, Tennessee. Thank you for being a part of our online community. We would love for you to join us at 8.30 or 10 a.m. on Sunday morning at the City Forum. In the meantime, if you would like to share a prayer request, make a financial contribution, or take a step at Real Life, you can text MISSION to 97000. Now enjoy the podcast. So I just want to kind of start out this morning, let's make this real right? Let's not make this hypothetical. So first off, I want us to think about the person in your life that if you're going to be honest, they are really, really hard to love, right? Okay, no elbows right now, all right? No elbows here of like talking about you. Uh, Maybe for you, it's a family member. You can kind of think maybe about, uh, you know, Thanksgiving is coming up next month. And every Thanksgiving meal, I think, has that one family member that is like maybe a little bit harder to love, and you remember what we said, right? Like, if you can't think of, like, who that family member is, right, it's probably you. No, I'm kidding. You're lovely. Everybody says so. Um, <laughs> right? Everybody has that family member. Maybe for you, it is a coworker or a boss. And you feel like, uh, you know, I do everything I can for this person. And I feel like I do everything right. And then there's that one thing I do wrong. And I feel like that person is going to define me by my worst mistake as opposed to what I try to do every single day. Uh, If you're a student or maybe uh, you're an athlete, it's clear that you have this person that's kind of like horizontal to you that you just don't see eye to eye. And to make matters worse, um, it feels like they, that you get what you deserve, but they never get what they deserve, right? They keep uh, doing things wrong, and yet it just seems to always work out for them. They get the grade that you want, maybe the date that you want. They have the friends that you want, and you're just over it. Um, and so we have this, these people in our life that we know as Christians we are supposed to love, but it's really, really difficult. And then the other big piece in our country right now are groups of people, all right? Um, it's us versus them. And we're as divided in our country right now, even in the church, as I can ever remember. Um, if you're a person that watches the news at night, one of the things I'd encourage you to pay attention to is how many times the journalist or the commentator uses the term they and us, right? Um, it, because when we talk about we and they, and we add fear and anger into the mix, it creates this division in our country. Um, because how we love or don't love our other, um, for a follower of Jesus, this isn't a matter of conscience. It's the heart of the gospel. Like, we are called to love our other. Uh, One of my favorite quotes is by a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf, and he says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. In other words, what we tend to do is we take our other And we will define them by the thing that we don't believe in. We will define them by their worst mistake. But then when we we do something, it's like, no, 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 let me explain. Like, Like, you'd get it if I could just give you the context. You'd understand where I'm coming from. We want that sympathy for ourselves. But when it comes to the other, we make them flat, two dimensional, and now they are our enemy. What do we do with that? And and the question that came out of community group is like, yeah, in principle, get it. I'm supposed to love my enemy, but how do we do that? Well, we're going to look at a passage that you're probably too familiar with. 
Um, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. The first sermon I ever did, I think I was like 19 or 20, I spent like 30 hours studying for the sermon, and I think it lasted like 13 minutes, and it was mostly wrong, right? So um, this is redemption, hopefully. Uh, some of you are like, 13 minutes? That's great. We're going to get out of here quick today. Uh, sorry. Uh, I preached the parable again like four years ago, and as I'm studying, all this stuff uh, began to drop out as I was looking at it with fresh eyes. I had always thought that this parable of the Good Samaritan was about like getting off of the horse or the donkey and helping those who are in need. And while that is certainly a point in the parable, that is not the point in the parable. Um, so we're going we're gonna to give you some historical context. If, uh, if you love looking at passages in new and fresh ways, uh, this is going to be for you. I think you're going to like it. It will get a little technical, but hang in there. I promise there is a payoff. All right? First off, what's up with a parable? A parable was designed to do two things, right? The rabbi would come out, and the rabbi would give a principle, like here's the big principle, and then they would tell a story that was meant to make it more clear. It was not meant to make it muddy. It was meant to make it more clear. And then the second thing the rabbi would do is the rabbi is telling you a parable that has a host of characters in it. And um, implicit in this is the rabbi saying, now who are you in the story? I want you to find yourself in the story and ask yourself, what would you do if you were in this situation? And so I want you to kind of keep that in mind as we read this parable. This is found in, if you have your Bibles, in Luke chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 25. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now again, in our uh, Western American lens, we typically read that verse and we think, he said, what must I do to be saved? Um, the problem with that is there's actually a way to say, what must I do to be saved? And that would be if he said, what must I do to be saved? Right? See how that works? He said, I know, deep, right? Uh, mind blown. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, the word here, eternal life, is the word zoa. And it's not, it's not less than what we tend to think of, of like going to heaven when you die, but it's way more, right? This is, he's asking, like, what does it mean to step into this sort of over-the-top, radical, abundant, shalom, peace-filled, joy, overflowing kind of life in the here and now? Yes, it includes when you die, but he was much more saying, like, what does it mean to live life to the fullest right now? And listen to what he said, verse 26. He said to him, what is written in law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So again, sometimes people will be like, okay, well, this isn't really what Jesus meant. He really meant this. No, I think this is, he really meant this. He meant that if you want to step into this abundant life, it's simple. I mean, it's simple, but it's not easy. It's love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as you, yourself. In other words, if you want that kind of life, if you want to step into shalom, into peace, into joy, love God with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. This wasn't good enough, though, for this religious scholar. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? If you're taking notes, 
the key word here is justify himself. Because I think at this point, he thinks Jesus' response is going to be something like, okay, your neighbor, they're your friends, your family, and really it's any Israelite at all. Those are your neighbors. Uh, to which he could say, great, I do all those things. Not only do I love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, strength, and soul, I love my neighbor too. And the crowd was going to go, that guy is good. That's what he wants. It's a, that's what he's saying when he's seeking to justify himself. But look at verse 30. Instead, Jesus says this. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed him, leaving him half dead. If you're taking notes, write down the word half dead. We're going to come back to that. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So a little bit of context. I think I have a picture of uh, the Jericho Road here. Uh, if you'll see, that is the road that goes along the top of the cliff. And first thing I want you to see, this particular road, there are parts of it that are only 18 inches wide. And there's a sheer cliff to the left of it. Even at its widest part, um, the other side of the road is almost a joke, right? It's not a very wide road in any place. And I think part of the point here is that these three men are forced to deal with this beaten man, right? They are going to have to go at, literally out of their way to not come into contact with this person. Now, what you have to understand here, and this is where the context really matters, this story is talking about two debates at once that were going on within the Israelite community. Uh, the first raging debate was, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Um, because they would say, a good Jewish person would say, hey, like, we are all created in the image of God. We have the breath of God in us, which means that we are loved and we are accepted and we are created in the image of God. Everybody. Oh, except for pagans. Like, but everybody else, right? Like, they are created in the image of God. And then they would say, well, actually except for Samaritans. Like if you think about the two bottom rungs of the ladder, like pagans would be the second rung from the bottom, but the hatred they had for the Samaritans was even below the pagans. They were, they were hated so much that they were called half-breeds, and they literally would, there, there are all these stories of them killing each other. This wasn't just Twitter wars, right? Like this isn't mean tweets against the Samaritans. They, they were literally killing each other. And so whatever the neighbor discussion was, it might be talking about family or friends or my village, um, or if you're going to be really progressive, the entire Israelite community. What was not in the discussion was that a neighbor was a Samaritan. That just was not part of the discussion. The second debate here was the unclean debate, which is can I help someone if it makes me unclean? So... 
check this out. Among the Israelites, there were sort of two different groups of people. There were the people that took the word, the Torah, literally. In other words, word for word. So whatever the Torah said, we're not going to expand it. We're not going to think about it. Like if it says it in the Torah, we're going to follow it to the letter of the law. So in Leviticus 21, when it says, no one shall make himself unclean for the dead, they must not touch a dead body of anyone. With this particular story, remember I told you to write down the word half dead? That is a technical term that meant if something doesn't change, that person will be dead soon. And for the literal folks, a person that would die soon is the same as a dead person. And what you have to understand is if you were a priest or a Levite, this meant that you could not even be in the same room where there is a dead person. So if you're a priest and your father or mother dies, it means you can't go to the funeral. You can't even go into the room without making yourself unclean. These people did exactly what God told Moses to do, nothing more, nothing less. There was another group of people. These were the oral law folks that said, it's actually about the spirit of the law. It's not just about literal word for word. And the the oral law people interpreted the Torah um, in a very different way. Uh, There was this term called kuak nefesh. In other words, human life is the most important thing. And this group of people said, like, yes, you take the word of God seriously, but you put it through this filter of does does it cause human life to flourish? Human life is the most important thing. And they would say that life is more important than these clean laws of purity and impurity. Now, hang with me, because I know this is getting a little bit technical, but this is so amazing to me. They would say you always put the life of someone else first and that you have to help the dead person. Two different groups of people. The first group, by the way, our group that you've probably heard called the Sadducees. They took the Torah literally. They took it word for word, and if it said it, they did it. The second group of people... The oral law folks that said, no, it's about life, life wins, might surprise you. It was the Pharisees. So think about this now. Would the Sadducees then have touched this body or helped this poor man that was in the ditch? And the answer is absolutely not. Now, the way I grew up learning this story was, I I think we even acted this out in VBS, you know, where the first two are kind of walking by and they're like... I'm not touching that guy, right? Second person goes, and it's like, I, I don't have time for this. I'm just going to move on. Actually, the people listening to this might have even said, oh, man, the priest and the Levite, that must have been really hard, like to see this person dying, and they couldn't help him. That must have been, that must have been really difficult. They may have actually had sympathy because of how they took Scripture so seriously. And some scholars believe that this story up until this point wasn't original to Jesus, that Jesus took the ending and went in a totally different direction. Because what people would have expected is they would have expected that, like, oh, wait, I know this story, right? The priest and the Levite, they couldn't do it because they take Scripture so, like, literal word for word and they don't do anything else. I know the end of the story. The hero is about to show up, and the hero is going to be the Pharisee. Now, again, our Western ears, we hear that and we're like, Pharisees, those are the bad guys. Now, like, again, in first century Judaism, the Pharisees were looked at very, very highly. Um, 
Jesus was probably closer to being a Pharisee than anything else. And you say, yeah, but Jesus was so, so hard on the Pharisees. Well, um, you, know, you know this, right? Like when you're your own tribe and you're criticizing, we tend to be harsher on our own tribe, the people that are the closest to us than anybody else. And so Jesus was very hard on what he called the hypocrites. But the Pharisees were, these were the guys that would have stopped. If they were doing, if they were following their own logic, they're the ones that would have stopped and helped this man. And so everyone's like, oh, I know the end of the story. The Pharisee's gonna be the one that comes and helps this guy in the ditch. And the ending of the story would have been something like, you ought to be like the Pharisee. That's not what happened. The third person is the most hated person that an Israelite could have possibly imagined. It was the person that wasn't even in the image of God in their mind. And he was the one that stopped and served and loved this person. Now here is the crazy thing. Was the Samaritan more like the literal word for word scripture or were they like the Pharisee in the oral law? And the answer might surprise you. They were much more like the Sadducees, except they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. But the Samaritan here would have been under the same structure as the priest and the Levite, and yet he had compassion. And that's when Jesus says, who was the neighbor? Let me just kind of give you a a few practical points out of this that I think um, should impact us a lot. And the first one is this. Jesus redefined your neighbor. As I mentioned, I grew up thinking that primarily the point of this parable was about helping the person in the ditch, and that is certainly there, but that is not the main point. Um, The question is, which character is the one you must love? And I always thought, again, when you see the man in the ditch, that's the person you must love, but who in the parable was the neighbor? The parable was about loving the Samaritan, about loving your enemy, the person that is totally disgusting to you. Jesus says, that is your neighbor. I want you to go and love your worst enemy. And as I was studying this, I realized the question for us is not who is the Samaritan today? The question is, who is your Samaritan? Who is the person that you would not be caught dead with over a meal? Who is the person that you like work really hard to not be around because maybe it's because of what they believe, maybe because it's the way that they've treated you. I I think the pandemic, and I mentioned this, I think in our rhythm series, was really, really hard on relationships. And I'm not sure what the dynamic was here in Clarksville, but um, in New Jersey, we saw um, politics spill Um, from social media even into the church. Uh, We we even had, and this breaks my heart, we had a family that said, um, I can't go to church because this person goes to that church and they believe this because I saw them post this on social media. That's the sort of culture that we've been in, especially for the last eight, 10 years in our our country. Um, Self-proclaimed Christians that now have done this to people based on you're not like me, even though we both say that we're followers of Jesus, so I'm going to push you away. This is about that. This is about saying that, like, if we believe the gospel and if we believe that God has accepted us as we are, then how can we then turn to our neighbor and say, well, that's a step too far? Um, 
I think it's really difficult for us to say um, that we will continue to fellowship with people that are so different than us, but I I want you to consider how this actually worked in the disciples themselves. Because you might say, well, well, Tim, like, I, I can't really, I, I need to be around people that, like, think like me. It's, it's better for me. Consider this, though. Consider the disciples themselves. In the disciples, you have Matthew and Simon the Zealot that are part of the same group. Matthew was a tax collector. That meant that he not only tolerated the presence of empire, he worked every day of his life to fund it. Um, it you know, you talk about draining the swamp. Like, Matthew was the swamp, he really was, like he was the swamp. He was empire. He represented everything that a lot of people hated. He was the, the Roman government. And then you have, um, on the opposite end, you have Simon the Zealot, who was a fierce Israel, like I'm all about Israel nationalist, to the point that he was like, okay, we're tired of this oppression. There were zealots that would be in a crowd with a, a, like a dagger uh, next to him, and they would go up to Roman soldiers stick them in the side, and then slowly walk away, hoping that revolution would ensue. That's who the zealots were. So you have Matthew, who represents the swamp and empire, right? He's the, the, those elite government people that we don't like. You have Simon the zealot, who's like overthrow the government. And now you put them together, and what happens? And I, and I think the picture here is beautiful, because you have Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot that are living with each other, they're traveling with each other, they're sharing meals with each other, and they're worshiping with one another. Like, can you imagine how awkward this would be? I mean, I wonder if at one point Matthew's like, hey, Simon, I saw you at the protest last week. Not cool, <laughs> right? Because, like, yes, they've changed, but they're still who they are. And I love what one commentator said that despite their diametrically opposed political views and backgrounds, they loved each other as brothers in a way that most of their contemporaries would have thought impossible. And why is that? Because they were disciples of Jesus. Now, I don't think for a moment that Matthew and Simon, as soon as they trusted Jesus, that all their political leanings and all their personality differences were just gone in that moment, the moment they met Jesus. But while Matthew and Simon's convictions may have been still important to them, they were no longer ultimate, right? Because their ultimate allegiance had shifted to Jesus, a kingdom that never ended. And so if, and again, if, you, if we live in a life where we think this is all there is, it makes total sense to go all in on your political party, to go all in on your worldview, to go all in on, I've got to have the most power I can have because that's all there is. But if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in a kingdom that goes on forever, then the person that you disagree with is made in the image of God. And they, they are a brother or sister that Christ has died for. Then it should change the way that we interact with them. It should change the way that we love them. Does that make sense? It means for us that we understand something, that the line of good and evil is not us and them. The line of evil is in every one of us, right? That we are created in the image of God and we are called to love them as Christ has loved us. God redefined neighbor to mean everybody. Number two is this, that love entails a cost. And you've probably heard this part before, 
But just a reminder, what the Samaritan did was not easy. This um, very common trick, we all know this, is you would pretend to put a beat, a person that was beat up on the road and you would wait for somebody that had a loving heart to come and to help them. And as, right as they're about to help them, you would attack them and steal their money. It was kind of a trap, okay? This was not safe. And I want to I be really, really clear because I don't want to try to sell you something here. Loving your enemy is right, but it's not safe. I can't tell you it's safe. I can't tell you that you're going to love your enemy and they're going to respond in a way that's like, man, I'm a good person and that worked out just the way I wanted. Loving your enemy is risky. And, and when you get burned, it makes you want to do it even less the next time. And so the only way that you can love your enemy is to understand that you're going to be vulnerable and that you're allowing yourself to possibly get hurt. The only way that you can do that is if you have a foundation that is different than anybody else in the world. And that's what number three is about. Love only works out of response. The key to this parable and the one that I never got is where Jesus places the religious scholar in the story. Remember what I told you? Part of the parable is to say, where are you in the story? We usually get this reversed. We usually think that um, in our minds, we almost think that the Samaritan is the person in the ditch and God is calling you to love the Samaritan. And, and by the way, if that's what would have happened, the people in the crowd would have been like, yeah, Jesus, I'm not falling for that. Even if um, even a Pharisee would not have uh, done anything for that Samaritan in the ditch. But that's not what Jesus does. He puts the Israelite in the ditch. And he asks this question of you and I, what if you were on the road? What if you were bleeding to death? What if you were half dead? And if if no one intervenes, you're going to die. What if your only hope was an act of radical grace from someone that owes you no love and has every reason to despise you and call you enemy? Would you want grace? Jesus is giving a dynamic here of what would happen if you had a radical save like this because only when you've experienced a radical save from someone that, that doesn't owe you any grace, when you've experienced that, it changes everything because now you can love your neighbor as you have been loved yourself. Jesus changed the question. The question was, who is the neighbor to the one in need? And until you get that, until we get that, we will never be able to love people the way that God has loved us because we will only look at a person and say, do, it, do, do they deserve my love? or they took this away from me, or they said this about me. They don't deserve my love, so I'm going to remove myself from the situation. The only way that we can ever love people that don't deserve it, the only way that we can lavish this over-the-top love is when we do it in response to the ultimate act that fits that exact description. And guess what? The Bible says that we were enemies of God. And I know that sounds harsh, but deep down, you know that we don't do that, that we typically don't choose God in and of ourselves. And we have the darkest parts of our soul. In fact, we are so much that way that it's like we are in a ditch and we deserve to be there. But we have a God who loved us to the point that he sent his son to the cross to pay a ridiculous price. Make, made himself vulnerable to the point of death, death on a cross. And when you see that, and you see that we get radical love, it frees us to give that sort of love to other people. Now imagine what would happen if, as real-life church, 
we loved people like that. We loved the people that whatever, whoever your other is, for some of you, it's Republicans. For some of you, it's Democrats. For some of you, it's those horrible libertarians, right? Like uh, who, whoever it is, who, whatever your other is, whether it's political, whether it's a group of people, whether it's a single person in your life, whatever it is, we are called to love them as Christ has loved us. We are to love our enemy. Love the person that is like fingernails on a chalkboard to you. And remember, uh, one of the things they talked about in the podcast was that love is affection plus action. And I just want to encourage you. Some of you go, well, what happens like if I don't feel it? Like, okay, I hear this and I'm thinking of this person in my life right now and um, I might be able to act, but there is zero affection for this person. In fact, I've got a lot of feelings, but they're not the kind I want to even like talk about in church on Sunday morning. What what? What do you do with that? I just want to remind you that it works both ways. Like to not wait for affection before you start doing loving actions. Uh, I remember when I was youth pastor, there was a girl in our youth group um, named Amanda. And she came up to me and she said, she's like, Tim, like there's this person um, in the youth group and I, I can't stand her. Like <laughs> she she gets everything that I want. Like she gets the guy, she gets this, I'm jealous. I just don't like her. And I told her, okay, here's what, Amanda, here's what I need you to do. I need you to start talking about her behind her back. And she's like, great, I'm already doing that. I'm like, no, no, no. Like, I don't think you understand. I want you to start talking behind her back and saying crazy good things about her. And I'm, her look was like, what are you talking about? Why would I do that? Well, the reason you do that is because emotion it's not just that action follows from emotion, it works the other way around. You begin to do loving things for another person and God begins to change your heart. You begin to pray for them and God begins to change your heart. One of my, one of my favorite illustrations, you ever, I don't know if you've ever had an illustration that just has stuck with you. I've probably heard this 25, 30 years ago uh, from a speaker at one of our youth conventions named T Tony Campolo. And he talked about a pastor friend of his named Walter who had a small church, and in this small church, he said, uh, there was this guy in his church that was the most unloving person you could imagine. His name was Arthur Forbes, and here's the way this pastor described him. He says, Ar Arthur Forbes was not an attractive man. He had a hunchback, he had a disfigured face, and he smoked constantly. He never bathed, and he, like, he, he just smelled really, really bad. But he always came to church, but the problem was he always came late and he never sat in the same spot. Yeah. He was gruff. He was rude. He was not an easy man to like. And Walter, the pastor Walter said one day he didn't show up to church and um, he found out he was sick. And so Arthur called the church to see if the pastor could come visit and he was sick and he wanted to visit. And so Walter says, I went to his house and it was like, the house was just in ruins. Uh, the porch was kind of slumped over. Um, it, it was more like a dilapidated shack than it was a house. And so he goes into the house and he's like, there's broken appliances everywhere. Um, and the gruff voice simply told him, hey, just come on in. He steps into the dark room and the shades are pulled down. And he said, there is filth everywhere and it smelled like urine. And he said, dirty dishes were piled high in the sink, rotting food everywhere. And in the very center of the room, there's Arthur Forbes sitting in this couch 
or this chair with the stuffing that is literally falling out. And the pastor said, Arthur, I've come to bring you communion and to pray with you. And Arthur said, forget the communion, just pray for me. Walter's like, so, okay. So I just prayed for him. Arthur continued to not come to church, and so Walter said, I felt it was the right thing to do to continue to visit him. And so every time he would go, he would just do a little, little things to help Arthur out. He said, I would straighten up his house. I mowed his grass. I did the dishes. I paid the bill, paid the bills. And he said, one particularly hot August day, Walter, the pastor, comes up, knocks on the door, and the normal gruff voice that would usually invite him in, there was nothing this time. And he walks in, and Arthur was sitting in the old beat-up chair, and there he was, completely naked. The pastor said he was repulsed. Arthur didn't phase him at all. In his gruff voice, he goes, I'm hot, so I took off my clothes, like, like you do. He goes, and I want communion today. <laughs> Walter said he was furious, like his hands were shaking in anger as he gave him the bread and the wine. Next day, the pastor returned, and there was no answer at the door this time, and so Walter just goes in, lets himself in, and he found, finds Arthur Forbes' naked body lying in the middle of the floor, and he calls a friend over. He's still alive. And they came over and the two of them pulled him up and they washed him from head to toe in every imaginable place. They cleaned him up, dressed him, and took him to the hospital. And Walter says, I checked him in, got him into his room, pressed a glass of water to his lips and said a prayer. And he said, and then something weird happened without even thinking about it. I went down and I, I kissed him on his forehead. Didn't even think about it. And so he left and he comes back to his house and the phone rings and the doctor says, I'm sorry, but Arthur Forbes is dead. And the pastor heard the news and he said, when he heard that Arthur was dead, he goes, I started to cry. And he goes, I hadn't even cried when my own father died. And the pastor said, I was crying and my crying turned to wailing and my wailing turned to screaming and I cried and I screamed and I wailed and it hit me. I loved Arthur Forbes. I loved him. Not because of anything he did, but he allowed me to give to him what Jesus had given to me. Don't wait for affection. As you worship and you experience the grace of God lavished on you as you're laying in the ditch, undeserving, as God lavishes out his grace on you, how can we do anything other than to find our neighbor who is the, our other and to love them as Christ has loved us? And we don't wait for affection. We move and we do what God has called us to do and allow God to change our heart in the process. This is not an easy teaching. This is not a popular teaching, but church, it's what we're called to do. They'll know that we are Christians by our love. That's my prayer for us as a church, is that we'll have that posture to the community that desperately needs to see a different way, the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we confess this is one of those teachings
that's easier to think about in, in hypotheticals and in, in, in imaginative ways. And that when it comes to reality, it is so, so difficult. And yet, Father, we have been lavished with love by you when we were your enemies. You still loved us, not because of anything that we did, because of your character, because of who you are. And so, Father, I pray this morning that even as we pour out our heart in worship to you, that we would be reminded of the infinite love that you have for us and that while we were still sinners, you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for us. To the degree that we get that, we now have the capacity to love others as you have loved us. So Father, whoever that is for us, whoever our Samaritan is, whoever that person is that we can't imagine loving, Father, we pray that you would just show us the way, show us what it means today, whether it's a phone call or reaching out for a cup of coffee, whatever it is, God, convict our hearts to love others as you have loved us. Father, we want our entire life to be a response to a, save, to a radical save that you have done for us. You're a good God and a loving God, and we give this morning to you. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's continue to worship. Thank you for listening. We trust that God is stirring something special in your heart today. We hope to see you on Sunday very soon. Keep it real. Keep it Jesus.